Thank you, Dr. Benson, for the opportunity to speak today and for that, those kind words of introduction. I'm going to get right into it today, so turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. No Old Testament book has, more, has had a more profound impact on my life than the book of Ecclesiastes. I was able to, years ago, study it for several months to prepare a series of messages for the single, the career singles in our church, Faith Baptist Church in Taylor's. I titled that The Secrets of the Good Life. And uh, if you want a broader study on that, you can go to sermonaudio.com or jimberg.com and download those, those files. I trust will be a blessing to you. Ecclesiastes is a book written by a, a young man, Solomon, who at 18 was given a blank check by God. He could ask for anything he wanted. He wrote out a check for wisdom and God cashed the check and he became incredibly wise. Ecclesiastes was written at the end of Solomon's life, probably a record of his repentance for living all of his life without God at the center. It is not, as some earlier commentators had said, the bitter musings of an old man. It's the inspired instruction of an elderly man who had it all, tried it all, and in the end, repented of doing it all without God at the center of his life. The literary form of Ecclesiastes is that of a cultural apologetic. That means a worldview defense. Solomon had distinguished himself as one of the wise men of his day. Uh, this was a class of men, usually philosopher kings, and in some cases philosopher queens, like the Queen of Sheba, who disputed philosophy and worldviews back and forth. In fact, when the Queen of Sheba comes to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions, she's not asking him answers to calculus or something. She's asking, she's, she's posing questions, philosophical questions, worldview questions, and she was very, very impressed. Uh, these philosophers wrote defenses of their particular worldview, these cultural apologetics, and they disseminated them to each other. And at the end of this book, Solomon says in 1212, uh, of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. Now, that could be a life verse of a student, but he's, he's saying we, we can write books back and forth to each other till the cows come home. But there's something you've got to grasp, and then the next verse, we'll come back to it at the end, but the next verse, he says, here is the conclusion of the whole matter. We can debate all of these things, but I want to tell you the core of it all. You must fear God, and you must keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And he said it all boils down to this. The central portion of a biblical worldview is that there is a God in heaven whom we personally fear and follow. And if we don't get that right, we, we can have a biblical worldview of aesthetics, a, a, a biblical worldview of ethics, a biblical view of our, uh, of our subject matter. But if we don't have a biblical worldview of ourselves before the living God and walking in the fear of God, then we're not going to make it. This book was written to a Gentile audience, these philosopher kings, 
Uh, and remember, Jerusalem at this time was teeming with Gentiles. David had made Jerusalem into a world power, a world trade center. Solomon is marrying these princess brides in political alliances with other countries. And when one of these princesses comes, she doesn't just bring a suitcase and a carry-on bag. She brings a whole camel train of staff and wardrobe and everything. And there are just thousands of Gentiles in, in uh, Jerusalem at this time. And this book probably was written to um, a, a younger philosopher, a budding philosopher Gentile in his court, because in 11.9 uh, he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And 12.1, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. And Solomon is using this book to connect with the unsaved world through the whole topic of despair over life's mysteries, life's enigmas, life's unanswered questions. And the key to understanding this book, uh, door, uh, Solomon left the key under the, uh, under the doormat at the back door, the end of the book in 12, uh, 1211, where he says, the words of the wise, or these things I'm telling you, are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assembly, which are given from one shepherd, the, the great shepherd. Now, what, what, is he, what is he talking about here? What is a goad? Goads were those long pointed sticks that Hebrew farmers would use when they're plowing with an ox and that oxen is going in front of them and the, oxen, the ox really slows down or, or maybe it stops. And he takes that long pointed stick and he thrusts it into the flank of that slow moving ox and the ox gets the point and he moves. And Solomon is filling this book with goading reflections to say, you don't have answers to this, do you? Let me introduce you to the God of heaven. There is, and the nails are these stabilizing truths about God. The masters of assembly was a servant who'd set up these Bedouin tents out in the wilderness for the sheep herders. And he'd drive these stakes into the ground and then lash the ropes to it to, to provide stability in all of those winds out in the wilderness. And Solomon is saying, I'm filling this book with goads. I want you to move and think reflectively. And that's important for us today, too, because our world is increasingly despairing. And even many within the church are despairing. There are many unanswered questions and mysteries and things that don't seem to be turning out right. And without the stabilizing truths of God's word and of God, God himself, we will be blown away by all of the trouble in this world. And he often asks uh, questions. Uh, these goads are these disturbing questions where we, uh, reflections where we finally ask, what's the point? And, and the point is, there is no point in all of this labor, all of what we're doing, unless there's something in our lives that transcends that pointlessness. Uh, this is, as I said, written to Gentiles. There is no mention of the covenants, no mention of Abraham, no mention of, of uh, the Exodus deliverance, because that would make no sense to these Gentiles. They, they wouldn't know anything about it. 
And he, but he's goading them with reflecting on the things that are going on in their own lives. For example, in chapter one, he will say, there are a lot of things that go in cycles. The wind goes in its cycles and comes around again. The sun goes in its cycles. The, the, the rain and the rivers go in their cycles. But you, you, you go around once and you're done. What's the point in all of your labor? What's the profit of this, he says. Chapter two, he says, so what if you get rich? And you've spent all of your life accumulating wealth and you have to leave it to an idiot, a fool, who spends it all unwisely. What is the point of all of your labor? Chapter 3, it says, so you die and your dog dies and you both lie next to each other in the dust. What is the difference between the two of you? And the point is there is no difference unless there's something in your life that transcends that pointlessness. And he goes on and on. He talks about unjust judges and oppression in the world. And he says that sometimes it seems like chance happens to everything. And he's constantly coming back to this, what profit is this? Or in other words, in our vernacular, what's the point of all of this? And you may have questions like that as well. What, what, is, the, what is the point of a college education? I spent all this money. I do all this. What is the point? You are being goaded by God. Anytime you ask what's the point about anything, God, had, you are reflecting on something that doesn't have an answer yet, and you must look for God's stabilizing truths that make sense of all of that. As I said, nails are those divine revelations, those stabilizing truths about God. Let me illustrate this this way. When I was a little boy on the farm, uh, I would watch my aunt bake bread sometimes, <clears throat> and she would she b baked it all, all from scratch, and she would assemble all of the ingredients on her kitchen table, and put a bowl there, and and she would take a quarter cup of warm water, pour a packet of yeast in it, let it sit for a little bit, and then put that in the bowl along with some salt and some baking soda. Now, if you list, if, if you if you um, mix up those ingredients and taste them, they taste horrible. But then she then she folds in all of the flour and the sugar or the honey, whatever she's using to sweeten it, and she mixes all that together, and then she she lets it rise, and then she. She uh, kneads it down and lets it rise and kneads it down, puts it in the uh, pans to go into the oven. And when it comes out, it's an amazing taste. Now, here's what happened. And, and Solomon is addressing it in, in these ways. All of us have losses. We have painful things. We have setbacks. We have unfulfilled expectations and unfulfilled dreams. A lot of losses on this earth. And if we're not careful, and they don't taste good. But the wrong thing to do is just not think about it. Solomon says, no, you must think deeply about it and fold in the rest of the ingredients. But what happens is that most of the time, a lot of the time, what is folded in are not truths about God, but lies about God. He's not being good. He doesn't care about you. He's, uh, he answers everybody else's prayers, but he doesn't answer mine. What's the point? and lies about ourselves, and lies about the way God's world works. And what we must do is fold a lot of truth into that. Paul, at the end of 2 Corinthians, is talking about his thorn in the flesh that he asked God to remove, and God said, no, I'll make my grace sufficient for you. 
And Paul says in 12, 9, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, 9, he said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and distresses. Now, I'm, I'm not there yet. I, I take pleasure in this. Well, in the ESV, it says, I'm content with these things that have happened unto me. I'm all right because God is here. He's spoken. He's, he, he tells me what's true about himself. He tells me what's true about myself. And what I'm illustrating, men and women, is that although there are many, many things in life that goad us, many disturbing things that goad us, if we don't fold in all of the truth about God, life will not taste good at all. And Paul says, I've learned to be content in this. Well, in chapter 3, he's giving us three limitations to goad us. And the first limitation is the limitation of, of the control of life. Do you ever feel like you don't have any control in anything in life? I mean, if you do think you have control, just try to get your cat to come in at night. You realize, I don't have control over anything. I can't even get a cat to obey me. We don't have control, much control. There are pandemics. And there's a, a, a sinking economy. And there are all kinds of violence around us and civil violence and all kinds of things dismantling. The weather, we don't control. We don't control the accidents. And especially... When, when you come to college, you get a sense of that like you've never had that before. When, when you're at home, it's like the bottom end of a funnel. When you're at home, there, there's a very small circle of people you're interacting with. Your family and a few people at church and school. And then, and then you go to high school and now you have some more teachers. And, and you have to get to know them. Maybe you know them from your church or whatever. But then you come to college, and it's, it's like that whole thing just gets a lot bigger. You, you have roommates that you don't know from Adam's house cat. And, and you have people in your society that you don't know, and they don't know you, and the professors don't know you, and you don't know them. And life seems more, and there, there are more and more mysteries and things that we don't know. Back when things were smaller, we knew how to push buttons and which buttons not to push. But life gets exceedingly more complex, and then we graduate from college, and we go out into ministry and, and uh, into careers, and it just expands. And we will be constantly goaded by all of that lack of control unless there's some stabilizing truths that we hang on to. In this, in this passage, the first 11 verses, I won't read them all to you for... Uh, for time's sake, but he says to everything, for, three, one, to everything there's a season, a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pick, uh, to um, pluck up that which is planted, and, and, and so forth. And down in verse 9, Solomon is basically saying, okay, so we have 14 good times and 14 bad times, 14 minus 14 is still zero, verse 9, what profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have all this pain, I have all this pleasure, and there's no profit in this. I can't seem to come out on top. And not only are we goaded by the, the uh, control, lack of control of life, but God limits our comprehension of life. We can't even understand why all of this is happening. We don't like unsolved mysteries. 
We feel like we're standing on one rim of the Grand Canyon looking at the other rim of the Grand Canyon through a high-powered telescope and we can only see one square yard at a time. That's not very satisfying. And God says, I've limited your, your comprehension of it uh, as well in verse 11b. Uh, verse 11, he says, he's made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world or eternity, a sense of eternity in their heart so that no one can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. He said, God has put in your heart a desire to know all of these answers, but he's withheld that from you. God has injected men and women life with intentional mystery to goad us to dependency on him. We don't have to know the answers, but he does. And God, not only does God uh, limit our control and our comprehension, he limits our enjoyment and satisfaction in life. In um, verse 12, he says, I know that there's nothing better for them or good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor, it's a gift of God. The enjoyment is a gift of God. 519, you don't have to turn there, but he says, every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is a gift of God. And what Solomon is saying, and he says this several times in this book, God is, he, he may give you a gift of, of riches, but he's also the giver of enjoyment, of satisfaction. And you can have your riches, and if he doesn't give you the gift of enjoyment because you don't have that relationship with him, then, then life, your riches aren't going to satisfy. I think one of the themes of Ecclesiastes is that you can collect all of your toys, but God dispenses the batteries. And without the batteries, your toys will not work. And we look for satisfaction in all kinds of things. Let's say that you're looking for satisfaction and you decide to go check out Empty Mart. It says satisfaction guaranteed. And so you go, you go into the store and you look for satisfaction in the materialism department and you walk around the aisles, you can't find satisfaction and the clerk comes by and says, uh, can I help you? And say, yeah, I'm looking for satisfaction. And she says, oh, we don't stock that in this department. In fact, we don't stock it in this store at all. And you're kind of puzzled. You walk away and say, well, I'm going to find satisfaction. I'm going to find it in the lust and sensuality department. And you go over there and you're looking around. The clerk comes up and says, can I help you? And say, yeah, I'm looking for satisfaction. And he says, satisfaction, we don't stock satisfaction here. In fact, we don't sat, uh, stock satisfaction in this store at all. And you say, but, but the sign outside says satisfaction guaranteed. He says, I know it got you in here, didn't it? And so you stay there looking around. You look at the power and prestige department and the friend and relationship department and the adventure and entertainment department. And no matter where you look, you can't find the satisfaction. And God says in Ecclesiastes, one of the, one of the themes is you will not find satisfaction in any individual component in life, only in the creator of our lives. So Solomon has... Tons of goads in the book. But then we come to the lessons, the nails. Verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. There is an eternal purpose. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should, be, should fear before him for our good to keep us in place as our creatures, as, as creatures under God. He, he limits us to teach us eternity. If you don't bring eternal perspective into everything that is happening in your life, 
you will live with some very unsatisfying mixture in your bowl. You will be constantly goaded. Solomon reveals the most important component of a biblical worldview is our daily consciousness that life is lived before our creator God for his glory. And if this is not our mindset, we do not have a biblical worldview, even though we may have all some other things figured out from a biblical worldview. God limits us to teach us eternity, and he limits us to teach us humility. He says God does this so that we would fear before him, basically that we would get in our place. He teaches us that our answer is not found in us. We're so easily deceived by the lie that we are in charge of our lives. And God is seeking through these messages in Ecclesiastes to bring us to face to face with our own limitations. For us to honestly see how much we really need God. And a biblical worldview keeps God central to all of this. Here's Solomon's conclusion at the end of the book. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And Solomon says at the end of this book, look, men and women in, in, uh, who, who are reading this treatise, these philosopher kings and queens, he says, you, it boils down to this. You can't make this life work and you will be filled with goading, disturbing reflections unless you learn to fear God and to keep his commandments. Get in our places under our creator God and our redeemer and keep his commandments. Live on this world the way he's outlined it for us, for our good and his glory. And he says, for this is the whole duty of man. One commentator said, this is the mannishness of man. This is the womanliness of women. Fear God and keep his commandments. Live life under his world, in his world, under his, under his sovereign care. And he said, this is how, this is the whole duty of man. This is how man flourishes. And then he reminds us as a part of a biblical worldview, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So what does that look like to us? It might look like this. Dear God, you have it all in control. And I'm okay with that. You comprehend all things. I don't, and I'm okay with that. You determine the enjoyment factor in everything, and I'm okay with that. I will turn my eyes to you in submission and dependency. That is where we flourish, men and women. The answers aren't in me at all, God. Forgive me for trying to take your place. I will gladly bow to you, trust you, and obey you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we feel the finiteness 
of ourselves and the world around us, we feel the fallenness of it. We feel all the sinful desires of our own heart that war against us. And all of these things would drive us to despair had you not loaded this book with truth. And I pray for these men and women here and for us as faculty and staff. Oh God, that we would renew our commitment that you alone are God and there is none else. And that is you that has made us and not we ourselves. We are your sheep of your pasture and we need you, oh God. We repent of our self-sufficiency of our arrogance and we turn to you in trust because all the things that you have promised to us and we ask for your help your grace your power to obey you and be useful vessels in your hand and we pray these things in the name of your son Jesus whom we love amen